Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us and we're with uh, worship this morning. It was great to, uh, to worship with you all. Let's, uh, let's pray before we come into the, the message today. Heavenly Father, once again, our, our gratefulness and thankfulness that we are able to meet together in this space and in this way to sing songs of praise to your name, to lift you high, uh, to glorify you, but also to receive from you. As Randall said, your spirit moves amongst us. And I pray as we come into the words of Scripture today that our hearts would be renewed and encouraged by your Spirit. I pray that our minds would be refreshed. I pray that we would be renewed by the transforming of our mind as we look at your Word and as your Spirit speaks to us. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to, uh, to do what we cannot do, that you would make us more like Christ. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I don't know how many of you would be familiar with the name uh, Henry Ironside, but he was a famous preacher from the early 1900s, and he shared a story in one of his sermons about something that happened to him when he was riding a streetcar in Los Angeles. So he said, as he was riding the streetcar, a fortune teller came and sat down on the seat beside him. She was trying to, you know, pick up some quick sales on, on the streetcar ride, and when she sat down, she said, would you like your fortune told? She said, it only costs a quarter, and I can tell you everything you need to know about your future. And Ironside said, well, actually, that's not necessary, because I have already had my fortune told. I've got a little book in my pocket that tells me about my past, it tells me about my present, and it tells me about the future. And she said, that's all in one book? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And he grabbed his New Testament, which I don't know of anyone who walks around with a New Testament in their pocket anymore. Maybe we should. But he grabbed his New Testament, and he flipped it open to Ephesians chapter 2, and this is where we're going to be today. And it began in chapter 1. He said, let me tell you my past. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He said, now let me tell you my present. He skipped down to verses 4 and 5. He said, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He said, that is my, my present. This is who I am now. And then he said, here is my future. And he came down to verse 7. He said that in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. All right, so there's the sermon. I'll call the worship team up. We'll just, you know, I mean, we've got it. It's, it's contained. Um, no, I, I, we'll dig a little deeper. But I, I do think that Ironside's little story here gets, gets at the picture that Paul is painting with his words here. We were once dead. 
Now in Christ we are alive. And this life is not only for now, but for the ages to come in eternity where God can point to us as a sign of his riches and grace. And so there is some richness here, I think, and it just, you know, going a little bit further than Ironside did with the fortune teller and going a little bit more in detail. And I want to begin uh, by quoting from G.K. Chesterton, who said, Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. And I don't really need to spend a lot of time debating that point. If you have any questions about the brokenness, fallenness, the sinfulness of the human race, just read the newspaper. And you're going to see murder and war and tragedy that occurs daily in thousands of places. Something has gone wrong with the human race. No one can successfully deny that fact. We are not all that we could be and not all that we should be. And so Paul, in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he highlights the unbeliever's state as spiritually dead, emphasizing how completely severed we are from our Creator. Unable to live for God, unable to reverse our standing with our own power, John Stott says that we are as unresponsive to him as a corpse before Christ. And the, the truth that Paul is getting at is he begins that in verse 1 by saying, all of us were this way. All of us were spiritually dead. There is not one exception. And it's only through Christ that we have spiritual life and eventually eternal life. And this is true of all of us. Our, our past is all the same. The sin actions might be different and to varying degrees. But the truth is we were all dead in sin and in trespass. Now, I just want to pause for a moment here to see if we can get a better grip on this idea of being spiritually dead. I mean, we know it comes from Genesis chapter 3, where, where Adam and Eve fall, right? And through Adam's sin and death enter into the world. And in Genesis 3, uh, the phrase that you shall surely die is dying you shall die. So it's not that they die immediately like dead, but it means that there's a spiritual death that starts. But I want to go to this idea of being spiritually dead and the being spiritually alive. And the commentator Constantine Campbell points out that we see the language of dead to alive in another place in the scriptures. It's in the, the gospels. It's in the parable of the rebellious son. It's in the parable of the prodigal son. So you remember the story, the, the younger son treats his father as if his father was dead. So the younger son goes to his father and demands his inheritance early, which is an incredibly rude thing to do. It's basically like the younger son going to his father and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. It'd be better if you were dead. Give me my money now, and I'm going to go do my own thing. You just don't do that kind of thing even in our culture today. You definitely don't do it in that culture then. But the younger son takes that money, he goes off to a distant land and wastes his money in wild living. And notice here that he's far away from his father. He's living life in a way that is contrary to the values of his father's house. He's, he's completely separated from his father. To the father, it is as though his son is truly dead. There's no relationship. There's no contact. But when the son falls on hard times and is starving, it says he comes to his senses. He decides to repent and go home. Now, he expects his father to still treat him as though he was dead. He thinks, he thinks to himself, well, of course my father won't, won't bring me back as his son. I've forfeited the right to be his son. But maybe, just maybe, he'll bring me on as a hired hand. But in the shocking twist of the story, instead, the father sees his son from a long way off, runs to his son, embraces him, throws a celebration, and declares, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And so they began to celebrate. The parable illustrates to us that it is not the Father's will that we should be spiritually dead, but that we, in our rebelliousness and bent towards sin, live in such a way that we are dead. We, we cut ourselves off from the Father. We go our own way. We go to the distant land and live in ways that are contrary to the values of our Father's house. The Father did not say, you are dead to me. The action of the Father to see his Son from a long way off means that the Father was looking out for his Son every day. But it was the Son who chose to live in such a way that he became dead to his Father. But the moment that we come to our senses and repent, we return to our Father, our Father celebrates and rejoices for the one who was dead is now alive. And the key here is that there's no sense in which the Father causes our spiritual death, but only the image of a Father who longs for his child to come home again and to be made alive again. And yet the truth is we were all like the younger son. We couldn't find our way home. We were off in the distant land, far away from our Father, doing our own thing. We come into verse 2 of our text. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we see once again, and we talked about this a little bit in a, in a different sermon previously in this series, that although we're held account for our own sin, there are other external forces at work as well. Specifically, Paul mentions the ways of the world and the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. We're going to talk in a moment about that. But notice in this second verse that Paul's not yet giving us relief from the bleak picture of spiritual death that he described, but he pushes us deeper into the darkness. Not only are we spiritually dead, but we are walking in it. Walking is a, is a Hebrew idiom that refers to conduct that moves you in a specific direction with a steady progress. So literally, we were the walking dead, moving and acting, but without true life. Walking in the ways of the world according to the ruler of the power of the air. We're not walking in a positive direction. We're walking to certain death. If you think about the modern depictions of the walking dead, if I was to say, you know, what is the walking dead? Everyone kind of knows now. Well, that's a zombie, right? It's that, that picture comes to mind. And you see that there is the semblance of life in a zombie, but a zombie is ruled by desires which they have no control over. They seem to be alive, but we know that they're not truly alive. They move and they act and they do things, but we know that they are not truly alive. And Paul is actually painting that type of picture here, that we are ruled by these desires which are contrary to God's will. It goes along with what Paul describes in, in Romans when he says, Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. I think it can be difficult sometimes to think about those who are not alive in Christ as being like the walking dead, as being ruled by their desires. Yet this is how Paul says, this is how all of us were before Christ made us alive. And this isn't to say that those outside of Christ or those not living in Christ can't accomplish good things. You know, I know plenty of people who are not Christians who are wonderful, warm, welcoming, amazing, generous, hospitable people. They can be good friends and good parents and good co-workers. 
But what Paul is doing here is he is pointing to this reality that we all have a struggle within us. There is a knowledge of morality that conflicts with our desires. John Mark Comer puts it like this. Sin is our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, especially pertaining to sensuality, as in sex and food, but also to pleasure in general, as well as our instinct for survival, domination, and the need for control, desires that are in all of us. In spite of the humanistic atmosphere all around us, constantly telling us that we're good, we all know we have these desires we don't know what to do with. Self-aware people recognize that there is a darkness that exists there. You know, I, I think for some people, they wonder, why do Christians always feel the need to talk about sin? Why is there this fixation on sin? Can't we just assume the best of people? But what I want to point out to you is that all Christianity is doing is naming a fundamental problem in humanity that all people in all cultures are aware of. Christians use the word sin to describe what's wrong with humanity. We think we've, we've got it figured out. We have it in the word of God, what sin is and how it entered the world. But it's not unique to us to notice the darkness of humanity. Others across culture and across history have noticed the darkness in humanity as well and just describe it differently. So if you ever have someone who's like, I don't know why you always got to talk about sin. Can't you just assume the best in people? You can point out, and I'm going to give you some examples, that all across history and all across culture, humans have recognized there's something wrong with humanity. Those who seek after truth and those who are self-aware tend to recognize there's something intrinsically wrong, not just with humanity as a whole, but they narrow it down and they go, there's something wrong with me. I'll give you some examples. This is from John Mark Homer's book, Live No Lies, which I'll make sure is, is put in the library in the next few weeks. It's a great book. But here's some examples. Five centuries before Paul, so 500 years before the Apostle Paul, the Buddha wrote this. In days gone by this mind of mine, it used to stray wherever selfish desire or lust or pleasure would lead it. Today, this mind does not stray and is under the harmony of control, even as a wild elephant is controlled by the trainer. So what the Buddha was writing is that he was saying, my mind is attempting, he's attempting to rein in the desires of his mind for lust and for pleasure. And he likens it to the challenge of riding or taming an elephant, a great beast. So he's recognizing there's something in me that desires lust and pleasure, and I need to control that. Around that same time, Plato used the word picture of a chariot driver with two horses tied together, each fighting for domination. One horse he called the lover of honor with modesty and self-control, while the other horse was a companion to wild boasts and indecency, shaggy around the ears, deaf as a post, and just barely yields to the whip and the goad combined. Again, notice the word picture that Plato's putting together. He's analyzing himself and he's going, there is, there's a part of me that seeks to do good, to love and to do honor and to live decently. And there's another part of me that is like a wild stallion that's out of control that seeks to do its own thing. If we come more recently, Henry David Thoreau, during his uh, soul-searching time at Walden Pond, wrote this in his journal. We are conscious of an animal in us. It is reptile and sensual and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled. And the psychologist Jonathan Haidt simply calls this part of our brain our animal self. The point being the reality of sin the existence of sin is common to all humans and all cultures. It might be called by different names, but there is an acknowledgement that there is something wrong. We call it sin. 
And the fact is that all humans acknowledge that there is this part of us which desires pleasure, power, and control, and there's varying ways in which we satisfy and justify those urges. The mantra of our day, of our time, seems to be, well, the heart just wants what it wants. Let it have what it wants, and then you'll be happy. Or be true to yourself, and then you'll be your full self. But the problem is happiness in our culture has become about feeling good and not about being good. The good life has actually just kind of been reduced to getting whatever you want. You think the good life is if I just get everything I desire. But isn't the good life better described as being the kind of people who want truly good things? To quote John Mark Comer again, he says, Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the stronger surface-level desires of our flesh. This is exacerbated by a culture where the widespread wisdom of the day is to follow your desires, not crucify them. But in reality, follow your heart is some of the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Here's why. Giving in to the desires of our flesh does not lead us to freedom in life, as many people assume, but instead to slavery and, in the worst-case scenario, addiction, which is kind of a prolonged suicide by pleasure. You might recognize some themes there out of Romans 7, where Paul says, I know what I ought to do, but I do not do the good that I, I want to do. I was listening this, this week to an interview with the actor Rain Wilson, who if you know Rain Wilson, he's probably most famous for his role as Dwight Schrute in the, in the TV show The Office. And he was talking in this interview about fame and addiction. He shared that for about 10 years, he was a struggling, sometimes literally almost starving actor when he finally landed the big role on a hit TV show. Suddenly he had money enough to live on and, and more than enough money to live on. He was famous enough that random people would stop him in the street and say, we love you. But what he realized, however, once he was at kind of the peak of his fame, was that, e- that even this wasn't enough. When he was a struggling actor, while well, he, you know, a hit TV show was the dream. You know, kind of the thinking, well, if I could just get consistent money and a consistent job and have enough fame that I could continue to get good jobs, well, then my life would be everything I wanted it to be. But he admitted that at the height of his fame, he wasn't satisfied with what he had attained. He found himself thinking, why can't I be a movie star like Jack Black or Seth Rogen? Why can't I write big-budget movie scripts and have my name be optioned by, by DreamWorks or, or Universal Studios? Basically, he was saying that once he had what he thought he desired, he simply desired more. This awareness of never being satisfied led to his own spiritual reawakening. But you can see how that desire to, you're never content with what you gain, and you're always looking for more. And I wonder if this is why we have so many relational problems in the world as well, is people just go, I thought I'd be happy in this marriage, but I'm not. I thought I'd be happy if we gained this, but I'm not. And so they keep looking for the next thing, and there's relational hurt that comes along with that and sin that comes along with that. But when we talk about walking in sin, about being spiritually dead, it's this type of thing we're talking about, where our desires are never actually satisfied. As Scripture says it, we're slaves to our desires. So think about that idea of being the walking dead. A zombie is never satisfied. It just keeps hungering for more. If we're not able to rule those desires, then those desires rule us and lead us to all sorts of unhealthy places. Now, Christianity teaches that without God's help, without God's intervention, we cannot rule those desires. They will always, in different ways, rule us. And if you noticed, you know, the quotes that I gave of the Buddha and Plato, what they were trying to say was that there are these ugly desires which we need to try and control. 
They might be able to do it to varying degrees. But what Christianity says is you actually are never going to be able to control that. You're going to need God's intervention. You're going to need God's help. So Jesus comes along and he starts to teach us how to live as fully thriving humans. And part of living the life of faith requires death. Death to self and new life in him, where we follow and obey him. Jesus says this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the battle within is to know truth and to live in truth, and Jesus is the truth. Now Jesus, knowing how weak we are, knowing that we are only dust, promises that we will be able to live out his teachings, not because he gave us the law, but because he gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been sent to help us. And because we will spiritually die to that old self, we'll be born again as a new creation in him. And Jesus then says, If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you an advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. But also because as we see in our passage today, Paul doesn't lay the blame for our spiritual deadness only on us. We're still accountable for our actions. We are like that younger son. We live in the far off land doing what we want to do. But there's two external forces that lead us in this trajectory of death. There's the world and the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the disobedient. So not only are we walking in a trajectory of sin, we're also walking within a realm that is, to use Paul's language, under, under the control of the ruler of the power of the air. And so Constantine Campbell explains this. He says, the power of the air indicates a realm or a dominion over which its ruler exercises control. In keeping with Paul's cosmology, his view of how things work, this authority of the air is a spiritual domain. It's part of the heavenly realms that interacts with the human world. Its ruler, Satan, the devil, has influence over those who live according to the age of this world, and the world serves as a field that generates the predisposition to sin, and the devil is the agent who operates within the field of the world. And so Paul's setting this scene here, that we are the walking dead, ruled by our desires and unable to overcome them. Add to that, there are other forces that keep us chasing after things which do not truly satisfy or bring life. The world, the flesh, and the devil keep saying, try this, try this, try this. You'll be happy if you get this. You'll be happy if you get that. And you're never fully satisfied and you keep going down that road. And so the picture that we get is that we will simply not be able to find true life on our own. And that's what so many world religions are trying to do. That's what so many self-help books are trying to do. They're trying to say, if you just do this, if you just do that, then you will have true life. And Christianity is saying, you're not going to get there without Christ. Now, Paul adds to the bleakness of this scene by saying every human was in this spiritually dead place. Now, previously, Paul was actually just addressing the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. But as we come into verse 3, he starts to address everybody. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so what Paul's doing here is he's saying, hey, it wasn't just you Gentiles living this way. Us Jews were also living that way. All of us were deserving of wrath. So these three verses capture the impossibility of the human situation. Internal and external forces keep us in spiritual death, walking in death, subject to the ruler of the power of the air and the lure of the world and our own desires. It's really a bleak, dystopian scene. But into this hopeless situation, 
two words come. But God. The most important verse in this section. Two verses, verses four and five. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So Paul paints this bleak scene, this, this impossible scene. There is, what hope is there? Well, God. We once were dead, but now are made alive with Christ. We are, through Christ, reunited with the source of life, God himself. That relationship with God that was hindered through sin and, and the ruler of the power of the air has been reestablished. And this relationship, this connection to the source of life, helps us live in the way we are always created to live. We're going to look at that next week. You were God's masterpiece, created anew to do the good works he had planned for you from long ago. But we cannot overlook the importance of being made alive in Christ. The technical term for this is regeneration. Last week I said we would, we would talk about this more, but at the heart of it, Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person or a slightly better person. It's not about starting a new religious routine. It's about becoming a new person, like truly new. When we are made alive in Christ, we are born again. Jesus explained it to Nicodemus, right? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back to his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. And this new birth, this new life, is not about new religious ritual or trying to be a nicer person. There's a pastor named Tony Merida who writes that he was speaking on this passage, John chapter 3, about the need to be born again in Christ, to be born anew at a church one time when an elderly man came up to him and said, I've been in the church ever since I was a boy. Someone just asked me when I was a boy, don't you think it's about time you joined the church? So I did, I joined the church. But I could feel God telling me today that I'd never actually been born again. I, I didn't know that I needed to be new in Christ. And so we have to make sure that we're not just inviting people into church and offering some sort of self-help, pop psychology, positive thinking stuff. We're inviting people to literally be born again, to be made alive in Christ, to go from death to life, to become a new creation. That's what Christianity is all about. We're not born again into full spiritual maturity. I think that's, that's sometimes something we think like, okay, once you're born again, you kind of know it all. No, no, you're born again and you're just an infant. You're just a little baby. It's okay. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're not going to have it all figured out. It's going to be messy, but you're going to have the Holy Spirit now. And the Holy Spirit is going to open your eyes to truth. He's going to remind you and teach you of the truth of Jesus. He's going to point you to Jesus. Being made alive with Christ allows us to pursue abundant life, true life, as we follow Jesus in the leading of the Holy Spirit. We ask, well, why does God make us alive, although we are dead and deserving of death? Paul says it's because of God's great love for us, because he is rich in mercy. We deserved wrath, says Paul, but instead we received mercy and love. He has great love for us, and our salvation is a gift. We receive it by grace alone. What does it mean to say that, that it's by grace you've been saved? Well, it means you can't earn it. You can only accept it. You can't work for it. You can only receive it. Faith is the only requirement. And so I think we then have to admit that grace, grace is a little bit scandalous. 
I think the doctrine of grace, as, as it's fully presented in the Gospels, is hard to accept sometimes. It's, it's even hard to believe sometimes, and it's even hard to receive how many people miss out on accepting Christ because they simply cannot believe that God would extend grace to someone like them. Grace shocks us in what it offers. Grace means that you get the opposite of what you deserve, which Paul says is wrath. But instead we receive love, mercy, grace, salvation, adoption, and union with Christ. And I think, you know, I was going to put in some stories here, but we're running short on time. But there are so many stories of people who've done like pretty terrible things. But they've received the grace of God. Have radically changed their lives. But there is a part of us that kind of goes, I don't like that. Maybe there's even people in your lives who've wronged you and you're like, I don't really want them to, to receive grace because I know what grace really means. I know that grace means that you get what you don't deserve. I just want to close today by, by having us reflect on the nature of God's grace, this lavish and this extravagant grace. And I want to go back to the parable of the prodigal son to do this. So the younger son decides to go home, but he doesn't expect forgiveness or grace. He's just hoping that maybe he can work as a servant for his father every day, just so he can eat. He, he doesn't expect to be made a son again. He, he understands that he's kind of made himself dead to the father. And he's like, if I could just work as a servant, as a hired hand, you know, at least I won't starve to death. But the thought that he might be fully forgiven and fully accepted does not even occur to him because that's not justice. That's craziness. But it's actually Grace. Grace is a little bit crazy when we think of it from human terms. It means we get for free what we do not deserve. We don't buy it, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, but we get it anyways. Where else in the world do you get something like that? Nowhere. But we see the absolute, crazy, amazing nature of grace in the next verse. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The father is more loving and forgiving than we could possibly imagine. The crowd listening to this parable would have expected that the son would come and be beaten for his insolence. They think, you know, before Jesus gets to this part, they're like, ah, yes, the son will come home and the father will beat his son to, you know, to where he can barely breathe and then maybe kick him into the field and say, okay, I guess you can work as a hired hand. Work until you pay the debt off and maybe then, maybe I'll let you come and eat in the family home. But in another shocking twist, Jesus says, actually, the father runs towards the son. Not only that, but the father saw the son while he was a long way off. And the instant he saw him in the distance, he did something no dignified father in that culture would have done. His compassion moved him to run to his son. I'm always a little embarrassed if I, when I was like late for the bus, I hated running for the bus. I think it's so undignified to like run after the bus. Right? I just hate the, like doing that. So like, I'd rather be late than run for the bus. In that culture, a father does not run on the dusty road. He is a dignified man of an estate. If you want something, you come to him. So it is shocking that the father sees his son from a long way off and runs to him. Picks up his robe and runs to him, getting dust everywhere. Who does that? And he embraces him. He kisses him over and over again. Now think of how the father could have acted. He could have seen the boy in the distance and said, Oh, it's about time. Here comes that no good son of mine. 
He can crawl up to me on his hands and knees and he can beg me for mercy. And I'll take him in if he agrees to pay back what he took from me. Isn't that the view that some people have of God? That he's saying, you just come crawling to me on your hands and knees. And if you are, if you are a pitiful, sad, sorry sack, you know, then maybe, maybe I'll let you in. But that's not what happens. The father embraces this son of his. He doesn't bring up anything that's happened in the past. The fact that his son has returned home says it all. Now, the son doesn't expect forgiveness. He doesn't expect his father to accept him as a son. He's desperate, thinking, maybe I'll just receive minimal punishment and survive by laboring as a servant. But instead, he becomes alive again to the father. And all of what he lost, and I say lost, but all of what he wasted and all of what he squandered is returned to him. The son gets what he does not deserve, what he has not earned. And all he has to do is accept the father's forgiveness and love. Stephen Cole writes, when prodigals come back to God, he'll listen to them as they confess their sin against him, but he'll have nothing to do with any talk that says something like, make me like one of your hired men. He takes us in as sons and daughters, not as hired hands. I'm going to call the worship team up as we we close here, but in these few verses, Paul's laid out humanity's condition. But our great hope for rescue and restoration, well, we are all like the prodigal son, lost, adrift, and spiritually dead, But God, our Heavenly Father, is not wanting to condemn us, but is eagerly anticipating that we will return home. And he's made a way for us to do so through his son, Jesus. And when we do return home, it is the embrace, the kiss, the ring, the robe, the party. We don't deserve it, but our Father in Heaven is pleased to give it. And he pours out his affection upon us, and his love brings us to life. My encouragement for you this week is just reflect on the nature of God's grace. It is so deep. It is so vast. It is so extravagant. You could never reach the end of it. And just praise your Father for what he has done for you. Let's worship together.